Welcome to another episode of Market Overdrive. <laughs> With me, my co-host, Nick Remetti, who's fighting over coffee that he gave me. You stole my coffee. <laughs> I literally Nick. went to get the coffee to wake up a little bit so I can deliver an excellent show for you and our guests here today. And what do you do? You steal the coffee just like you steal the show from me. <laughs> How how are you? Does it bother you that I'm sick? You're sick. Then you can keep the coffee. Collaborating with you. Oh, I was going to give it back. No, I don't want anything to do with that coffee anymore. (laughs) Anyway, welcome, and uh, thank you for sharing this afternoon with us. What are we talking about today, Nick? Um, Real estate. Real estate. Yep. We are always talking about real estate. The whole purpose of this show is to raise the listeners' IQ. I love that. Look at you. You've been practicing that line for like five years. Is that what you it know, is? Hold up. Certain things I can say with, you know, in my sleep. How terrible is this weather? Elevating your real estate IQ. And, down, and I am sick, but with us also, how are you? Carla, you look great. Even you. if you're a little bit under the weather, you don't look it. You don't sound it. You look like a million bucks. And we're glad to be here on another episode of Market Overdrive 2019 edition. Uh, this time I have one of my favorite people. It's not just about real estate. This is a friend of mine and I'm going to jump right into it. So today on the show, we have... Jason Finn from Baird and Warner. Jason is going to talk about some of the things that buyers don't know when they're working with a real estate agent. And so, Jason, tell us a little bit about your background and thank you for coming on the show today. Joel, thanks so much. Thanks for the kind words. Uh, I've been in real estate for 12 and a half, almost 13 years with Baird and Warner the whole time. And uh, I love to work with buyers uh, and I love to work with sellers. But I come from a consulting background and I come from an analytics background. So I'm data driven. And I like to consult. I like to uh, put my clients in a better position to understand how to be successful in the real estate market. So we have to, we have to pause and ask the, the, the obvious question. Yeah. Why switch from the consulting background to real estate? What made you passionate to make that kind of a career decision? Sure. Uh, that's, uh, that's a tough question. Uh, but I moved we to like Chicago. Tough, we like tough questions. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, I moved to Chicago 22 years ago, I'm going to say. Uh, and uh, I was not here for about the first 10 years that I moved to Chicago. I was traveling constantly mm. on the road four or five days a week. When I did have in-town clients, I was uh, commuting to, the, to them and spending three hours a day on the freeway. Hmm. So I said, I need a job that keeps me in the city of Chicago. And spending only four hours a day in the car. Exactly. Sure. Now I spend move. the whole day in the car. Great decision. Uh, yeah. Carry on. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> so I think today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, how sellers can be successful in pricing their homes and some common misconceptions about... Uh, how you how you price a home. It's not just what the neighbor's house sold for or what the one across the street or across the hall if you're in a condo building, but that's sold for. Uh, but rather, there's a little bit more that goes into it. I like that. I like that you said that because most of the time what happens when you're out there and you're getting ready to talk to a real estate professional, if you're a buyer, and that's what the focus of the show is, is educating these people that are listening about how they can actually grow and what they can do when they're uh, hiring a real estate professional. So, Jason, tell us some of these things that you think are mistakes. I like to really get into it. There are certain agents that they're only going to do this, and tell us why that's a mistake. Sure. A lot of times when we're talking to home sellers, uh, they, they do just what I said. They look across the street, they look down the block, or they look across the hall and down the hall. This one sold for this much money, that one sold for that much money, and therefore my home is worth somewhere in that range. Uh, real estate agents often make, make that same mistake, I'm going to call it, and that, and that may feel strong, but I think they're missing out on something really important. If you want to be successful in selling your home, you need to think like a buyer. 
And a buyer has a certain amount of money. They have a uh, they have a budget, and let's say it goes up to five hundred thousand dollars. They are going to probably buy towards the top of their range, right. and they're going to buy the nicest home that's available for five hundred thousand dollars. So until it comes time for negotiation, they don't care what the one across the hall or down the street sold for. <clears throat> they only care what they can afford and what's the nicest place they can afford. And more than likely, they're going to want to get a better deal than what sold next door. So everyone wants to walk away feeling good about the transaction. So if it's sold for 500, you could almost bet their goal is to be below 500. That's right. And in some cases, the seller should be priced decently above 500. Right. So if a developer puts five homes on the market and they're identical Mm -hmm. and four of them sell for $500,000 and the fifth one is still available for sale, a buyer, a seller, an appraiser are all going to say that's a $500,000 home. Easy. But if the next available home that is similar to that is listed at $700,000, why can't you get more than $500,000 for it? If a buyer needs a home, that's, that's their option that's available to them. What would you say to someone who says, uh, "What if uh, what, should I get an appraisal done on the property before listing the property? Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one. Uh, that happens, certainly happens a fair amount, as, as you know. Uh, I think that you know, an appraisal is the appraiser's opinion of the market value, and it's based on data, and it's based on some objective evidence. But if you ask two or three appraisers for their opinion of price, you are probably going to get two or three different answers. And so the, the key person, and I may have a little bit of bias in saying this, but the person you should talk to about how much a home is going to sell for is somebody that sells homes for a living. And so they're going to look not only at the data, not only what has sold recently, if they're doing it right, not only what they're com- you're competing against, but they're going to look for trends in the data and opportunities. So if a home can sell for a little bit more, that appraiser's number may not be reflective of the actual market value. So, and I just want to bring this up because I just had this conversation yesterday with somebody. I have another house in in Oak Brook. And um, I'm not going to mention the agent's name, but there's an agent in that area who's very well known for significantly overpricing properties to get the listing Mm -hmm. and then basically kills you with an exhausting amount of time. No one wants to work with it. It's just a nightmare. Yeah. How can somebody that, you know, you're, you're interviewing three or four different agents. Um, let's say they're all comparable. Uh, they all come in at 500 mm-hmm. and then this one comes in at 675. Right. And why not? Of course you're going to pay attention to the one that says 675 versus the other three who gave you 500. How do you identify <clears throat> that bad trick, if you will. Some agents sure. are ruthless. They'll do this with the with the no knowledge that they're going to end up pricing it down just to win the listing. Right. Absolutely. So it's uh, you're, you've got some some great questions, Nick. Now I can see why you, why you do this. <laughs> First to hear. Uh, <laughs> uh, it is uh, it is a unfortunately somewhat common exercise uh, that agents terrible do, or exercise trick. by the way absolutely it's, it's so sad absolutely i agree one really good way to beat that is to uh a, a, when the agent comes in they should be bringing you comparable properties and they should be showing you not only what you're competing with which was the point i was making a moment ago but of course also recently closed properties and when they put those comps in front of you let's say they they tell you your home can sell for six hundred thousand dollars uh Put, put other $600,000 homes that are available on the market in front of that consumer as well. That home seller should be looking at what else is for, available for sale for $600,000. And they should say to themselves, if I had $600,000 to spend on a home, which one of these would I choose? Would it be mine? Or would it be this one that's two blocks away with an extra bedroom and a helipad in the backyard? Right. So... So yeah. essentially, make sure that when you make a decision that they all come in with some data. Because, I mean, clearly this person sure. has to be coming in with lofty promises and, and, and absolutely no data to support what she's saying. Absolutely. Um, 
you know, and it, people are, have selective hearing. All they keep hearing is a big number For that's sure. way above everybody else's. Yeah. But you're saying that when you're making a decision between multiple people to make sure you're priced right, if they all have similar data, then it becomes a personality test. Who do you want to really Absolutely. work with? Absolutely. It has to be somebody that you can trust, somebody that you can rely on, but they have to be able to bring the data and they have to be able yeah. to nail that. They also, you know, they don't get, they don't get paid for putting the home on the market and letting it sit there. So an agent has incentive, uh, similar incentive or the same incentive as a home seller yeah. to price it right. But of course, getting the job is another part of it. And they're selling well, and, and too many pers- times. And this person's actually, I mean, the, the way it came up is we were in Oak Brook with a bunch of agents and a few of them that really do all luxury homes in Oak Brook, Hinsdale. And specifically when it came to Oak Brook, they're really upset because this person is actually slowing the market time. Yeah. Like, you know, they're, they're winning over a lot of listings because she's throwing out an extra three or four hundred thousand dollars on top of what it really can go for and it looks like oh the luxury market is slowed in oprah no it's not slowed it's slowed for that one individual right if you if you remove her from the equation the market's actually pretty fluid but it's like you know she's got a lot of listings like this and it's really a a sucker punch and i just because it was hot in my mind from yesterday and here we are talking about how to price it correctly but on the flip side though the worst thing you could do is is, you guys are realtors the worst thing you possibly do is constantly price reduce and right. having to sit there for a year, but right? I, I see. I so I want to put a different perspective, right? Because you're talking about the fact that comps are subjective, right? It's a fair market evalu- evaluation of pricing based on what has sold in most recently. So <laughs> it's very subjective depending on who is the person that's interpreting the data. But if you're looking and you're a seller, like you said, put yourself in the position of a buyer, right? A seller is not going to want to leave any money on the table. So it all depends on the sellers too. Because being a realtor, sometimes you ask the seller, what's important to you? And if they say, I need to move fast, then of course you're going to price it to sell. But if they're saying, well, I want to test the market, I want to see where it's going, maybe the seller is indicating that they want to be at the highest of the comp. Maybe it's not that realtor who's strategically trying to win a a listing so that they can price high and then make adjustments. That makes sense. You're absolutely right. These are bad. Bad as in like... See, it takes a lender to talk bad about the industry. Th- these are so bad. I was a buyer three years ago in Oak Brook, and I, and I saw this person listing homes. I'm like, what the... I'm going to stand up for are the little talking people. you So it's, 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 it's actually a trick. My purpose, my point was just to bring out the trick, the, the bait and switch, which is really dangerous. And I'm, and I'm giving absolutely. you a hard time because I know that some people do, in fact, do that. I mean, I went for a listing presentation. There was two agents that were interviewed for the property, and it was a multi-unit. I happen to know a ton about multi-units because I work with a lot of buyers who are looking for multi-unit properties. And so the competing agent came in at a million and I came in at a million fifty. And the reason I did that was because I know strategically we can get client in between that threshold if we market the property strategically. Um, and I feel like sometimes agents are saying, let's get, let's liquidate the asset, but they are, they're trying to do bidding wars. And then sometimes it's like, okay, yes, but the seller has time. You know, they have a, a six month window. As a matter of fact, they said that they like to do a lease back or they like to extend extend the, cl- the closing after we go on a contract. And obviously, you know that there's rate lock issues when it comes to that. So the prospective buyer is going to have to incur a fee for locking the rate for a prolonged period of time by the time my estate sale or my sellers move to um, to another area. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that go into the mix when it comes to comping out a property. But I do appreciate, Jason, that you mentioned that bringing in comps, like bringing in the raw data and having the sellers look at it so they can understand that it's not what you think the property is worth, but it's really an interpretation of what the numbers, right? Sure. So can you go back and really go dive into um, how do we analyze apples to apples or comparables? Yeah, that's uh, there's a lot of times there aren't perfect comparables. There aren't 
properties that are just like that one. And so there is a little bit of, I don't want to say guesswork, but certainly some some educated guesswork, at least. We've done this before. We've done it a number of times before. And we have an idea of what the buyer pool looks like. It may look different next week or next month, but we have an idea of who's out there and what they're looking for and what sort of premium we can get uh, above and beyond other comps. So we can take a comp that's too high and say this this place is bigger. It's more recently updated. It's nicer. It's in a better neighborhood. It's more advantageously located to public transportation, if that's a priority in that neighborhood. And say, we know that this number is too high because this property is on the market. We would be competing with that and we'd be unsuccessful. We can take a comp that's too low and say, we're much nicer than this property. If we were priced at the same as this property, we would sell in the first minute we were on the market, uh, but we would potentially be leaving some money on the table. So there is this exercise and it, it does have to do with doing this for a long time and looking at a lot of properties and understanding the value of certain things, of upgrades, of rooftop decks, et cetera. How do you guys handle a situation where, like, you know, sometimes the, the properties, I did one for a family member years where there wasn't a whole lot of sales. It wasn't, there was like nothing really active or closed. Just yeah. one of those areas where everyone just parked there, you know? Right. But like, how do you get in a situation where you don't have a lot of availabilities um, or a lot of p- previous closings, but then like a one very similar house had to sell. It was like a death, an estate sale. It it just had to move, you know? And let's say this thing is really worth like three and a quarter. You know, it's three and a quarter. You did some research going in, but then they know their neighborhood, their neighbor sold for two sixty. How do you deal with listing it for what you really feel is it's worth? Like, you know, people are like, well, that's sold for two sixty. Why is this house worth three and a quarter? Right. Like, how do you deal with that explanation in this marketplace? Sometimes it depends on what the market's doing at the time. So if you've got a hot market and you've got a perfectly competitive market, then the market is going to sort out the price, even if the even if the agent makes a minor error in some cases. So if you if the homes were three twenty five. That other one sold for two sixty, and you put it on the market for three hundred thousand. But it's a perfectly competitive market in the sense that you're going to have twenty five buyers come yeah. through that property this weekend. There, you may well get multiple offers, and you may right. well have a bidding war. And so that price is going <coughs> to sort itself out. But there's of course a risk as a seller that you may not be in a perfectly competitive or a hot market, right. and so you don't want to leave money on the table. So I think it really is asking your real estate agent to justify the pricing that they come up with and to drive home what it is about that particular price that makes sense. And it has to be a real estate agent that's not afraid to have that negotiation with a prospective buyer. Hey, that other one sold for two sixty. What makes you think you're worth sixty five thousand dollars more? Well, I'm happy to tell you what that is. You getting a the theme here? It's, What's the theme? Well one of the things that I like about what Jason does is he actually comes from a knowledge standpoint. Like you talk about game theory and things like if you're looking at what's the competition that's on the market. So a question that I have for you, Jason, is that if I'm a listener right now and I want to go sell my house and I want to talk to you, it's not always about what has sold. It's not about taking the last three, four, or five sales. There's something that you will do to see what else is on the market. And when we talked about it, I always thought about when I'm selling my Cubs tickets, for example, on StubHub. It's not what they're (laughs) worth. It's what else is for sale right now. So talk to us about that. Sure. I love the ticket analogy. And I think it's, if you think about two sets of tickets available for sale for the same price. So would you like to sit, uh, you know, would you like to sit in the 300 section along the third baseline or would you like to sit right behind the Cubs dugout or would you like to sit right behind home plate? If they're priced at the same price for those two sets of tickets, of course, the seats behind home plate or above the dugout are going to sell first. First. Okay. 
even if they're going to sell ultimately at the same price. Because once those dugout seats sell, if the only other ticket's available, of course, we're making up this mm-hmm. fantasy world where there's two sets of tickets available. The other ones are the only game in town. So again, it comes down to what are a buyer's options. And this happens a lot in certain markets. If you're taking the West Loop, for example, and we're looking here in Chicago, and you want a specific area with a certain number of bed and bath counts, oftentimes there's only a few number of properties. And so you can use that to your advantage when you're getting ready to sell. Just because the last three sold for five fifty, if there's nothing on the market at that, as a seller, you might be able to get more, right? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. It's, it all comes down to what the buyer's options are. Of course, there are other conversations to be had later. What's an appraiser going to do? How are you going to get your mortgage? All those other pieces. But those are bridges we cross. If we start out with what we perceive as a premium, then we've got an opportunity to let's say, beat the market and also maneuver within those other questions. With a couple of mortgage guys in the room like Nick and I, somebody will make sure that mortgage gets done, right, Nick? Yeah, one way or another. Okay. <laughs> one way or another, man. One way or another. You said earlier, um, do you see a trend here, Joel? What were you trying to, what were you going at with? No? Oh, a theme. A theme. It, it, oh, yeah. He was everything, asking me. Everything that he kept, he kept reiterating uh, and everything we kept throwing at him, it, it, it came back to ask more questions. Ask a lot of questions about when you're listing your house, um, which is the theme. I mean, you should ask questions. And so if I you're think, a buyer listening here today, remember to follow us on YouTube and make sure that you continue to educate yourself. And that's what we're trying to do here is by bringing people on that will help you. If you're getting ready to buy a property or sell a property, every single time that we're doing the show, there's something that you can gain from us. So we're happy I mean, you're it, on. Be a seller for a second. You've never had to sell a home. This is the first time you're actually selling. You right. bought it. And, and, and imagine getting our last five guests to come in and your listing appointment to be your listing agents. <sighs> Amazing. You'd be screwed. <laughs> You'd be like, I need, I'm going to need way. to have like a lottery here because I have no idea who these are. Like, they're all really good. The only thing you have to help you out now is to maybe try and fl- find a flaw in one of their argu- you know, process of elimination because they're all very good. It is. They're very smart. They know what they're doing. They're, but you that's know. the key to this business, right? Because there is a, t- a lot of people coming into the business that really are not are novice in understa- understanding and interpreting data. Sure. Going back to your rural question, like how do you comp out or how do you um, assess fair market value or today's fair market value for a property that hasn't had any transactions in the last year or so, right? We go, what, three months, nine months, 12 months if there's no no comparables. But in those specific areas, you have to look at appreciation over time. And then you also have to look at, like, go outside that one yeah, mile go, radius. you got to go way out you got to go way out yeah. to kind of figure out. And in some cases, 24 months back uh, in order to assess, you know, the tradition, like the increase in, in growth for the specific areas. That's we where, were in a um, golf club community when we priced out that property. It was so hard to comp out. That's when it gets difficult because the logic is you should be able to go out. I think a lot of realtors with a lot of know-how, realize that, oh, I got to stay, that's too far, that's in the next town, I can't really use that as a comp. Sure. But appraisers do get a little bit aggressive like that when they're left with no choice. They will go over to the next town. They'll drive two miles out if they have to. If it's a very limited supply of data, they have to do what they have to do to actually form some kind of an opinion. Well, see here, I think this is what differentiates, what's the difference between a realtor and an appraiser, and I don't know if Jason, you agree with this, but I think the difference with a realtor and an appraiser is an appraiser is there to justify the value 
value that's already under contract. Whereas a realtor is looking at the market activity as far as competition. What has sold? What is under contract? And more importantly, what is my competition and how am I going to compete against them? Because strategically, I only look at a half a mile radius of subject property versus that one mile because in Chicago specifically, there's so many boundaries, there's so many neighborhoods, there's one block that's better than the other. Even in Wrigleyville, like even in Lake Lakeview, there's specific Especially. areas that you're like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm in Boys right. Town. Yeah. Then you go to Roscoe Village. Right. Then you're in North Center, and you're like, okay, these are pockets, and you have to know you have to know the area in order to understand it, the, the differences, right? For sure, and competition is exactly the right word. That's the word that we use. Being competitive as a seller, competing with the other listings on the market. And there's one other trick uh, that I can offer up, which is that if let's say we have a, a home seller in Albany Park, if we're talking about Chicago neighborhoods, and they have something, and we've come at it from all angles, and we've looked at recent data, we've looked at the competition, and we come to the number $800,000. There are folks that would like to buy a single-family home in Lakeview or in Lincoln Square or in North Center that maybe don't have the $1.1 or $1.2 million to get that home. So we take that $800,000 number that we've come up with, and we shop it in other neighborhoods. What are we competing with in other neighborhoods? An appraiser's never going to do that. They can't do that. But when we think like a buyer and we know what other opportunities buyers have, then we can use that tool to reinforce our price. That's great advice. My advice to anybody, some people that are really slick, and I don't blame them for thinking this is a good thought process, they would just order an appraisal. Sure. Like, you know, just call up anybody. Call up me or Joe, and we could refer you to an appraisal company or an appraiser to just give you a personal report. And then that's it. There's my value. I know, I, but then, I hired like, a certified appraiser. Well, like I said, yeah. you're going to spend that money for what? You might as well, well hire an inspector, too, and get you a to-do list of what I'm getting there. Okay. <laughs> I'm getting there. But, but... I would never trust an appraiser over a realtor because, like you said, Thank they you. actually know the <laughs> Why pulse. are you spending my clients' money They're, already? <laughs> if you're going to hire an appraiser, hire has, five of them. Because this <laughs> has happened. The number. Because we have talked to thousands of clients over the years, and I've had clients say, oh, no, I hired an appraiser before I even called the realtor. I, I just hired a realtor that I know has a lot of buyers. I knew what I was going to sell it for. I'm like, you did what? Like, <laughs> and wow, as a realtor, okay. we know when that appraiser shows up, they've just come from, you know, they were just in Blue Island, and later yeah. today they're going to be in Winnetka, yeah. and they're probably not an expert on that neighborhood. Right. And trying to get as many appraisals done that day as they can because that's, right. that's how they make a living. Right. And here you are focusing specifically on Winnetka all the time at all times. You know, it's like, dude, I would trust an appraiser, I mean, a realtor over an appraiser it's any crazy. day. Here's and one more thing that Jason was talking about yeah. there, especially with this. An appraiser, guys, as you recall, they're looking into the past. They're looking at what truly has sold over that six month period. And if right now you don't have comps on the market that are for sale, there's an opportunity that's going to be lost that Jason really just helped our listeners uh, explore. So just by looking at what we sold in the last six months doesn't necessarily set what I should sell my property for. If there's a lot of activity, I may have to sell it for less. If there's not a lot of things on the market in my area, it prevent it, pre- it presents an opportunity for me to actually list it for more. And that's what I really like about what Jason is saying. Before you go, Jason, just an idea of what's going on in the market. What are you seeing right now as far as buyer activity? Sure. So, you know, a couple of years ago, and I think I heard you talking a couple of weeks ago when uh, when Danny was here about the market changing a little bit, that there was that there was almost no inventory a couple of years ago and that you really had to, to move fast. It was reminiscent a little bit of, of 12, 14 years ago in some ways, not entirely. Now... I see that the inventory is much more balanced, that we've got four, five, six months of inventory, depending on the neighborhood you're going in, depending on the property type that you're looking at. And so I do feel buyers are a little bit more 
careful and cautious. They're maybe a little bit more skittish or not as quick to make a decision uh, because the market is a little bit more balanced. But I think it's a really healthy place for the market to be. I think that prices are maybe appreciating, but not appreciating too quickly. And uh, and I think buyers have an opportunity. That's a buyer calling me right now. Right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to run and get that. Sorry, it's my but, mom. Uh, no. <laughs> I'm happy to help her. No, seriously. Yeah. My mom. <laughs> you see my face? How long have you been doing this? Do you not know? I was going to take the fall for you, He's never met my mom. (laughs) (laughs) Poor guy. I should say lucky you. (laughs) I was going to take the fall, and now I'll take the fall and help find a place. It's all good. Great stuff. You guys are hilarious. I love it. So buyers need to do a little bit of research, but they need to to talk to an agent that understands the market, that knows how to look at the data, to look at where the market has been, where the, what the trends are, where, where the market is going, yeah. and understand what opportunities they have to find the place that they really want in their budget. And yeah. it might be looking broader uh, geographically, or it might be getting a little bit more creative in their search. I've had clients buy places and build bedrooms in places. They, <laughs> they could afford a two-bedroom. They needed a three-bedroom. They had a dining room there that they didn't need. They built a third bedroom, and then they turned around and sold it for a premium a few years later. So in short, you don't see, I think Joe's question was specific, but I think we also, when we hear the, his question, you don't see it slower or busier than the previous two years. Uh, this year, the, the I always think of the spring market as starting right after the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. And this year, I felt like things were really hot January 1st, January 2nd. The spring market started really early. Really? The spring weather dragged really long, right? It hasn't stopped raining. <laughs> Uh, I I have felt a bit of a lull, I think, in the last two or three weeks. And I think now that the the sun will be coming out, the weather will be nicer, that I expect that to pick up again. And if we look historically at the city of Chicago over the last, let's say, 10 years, May and June are months where there have been a lot of activity. Cool. I like it. You know, Nick, last year you said something like everybody should start selling now because this is where they're going to get the highest um, value for their property. And I think that in fourth quarter, it kind of slowed down. It scared a lot of people. So now all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, crap, I missed the boat last year. So now they're like, you know, we really got to come back because I've seen a lot of properties come on the market just because sellers are afraid that they're going to miss the boat from getting it sold at the highest yield. Yeah, I think I think investors or if you (coughs) I was speaking for myself more than anything else. Right, because yeah. I mean that's you know, that's who matters the most, right? No, so you know, if investors, you're always want to try to maximize your return, and I felt that that was, to, in my opinion, at that time, the best low risk, high reward selling point. If you're an owner and you live in the house, there's other things that come in the equation. It's not about getting every last dollar. You got schools, you got you know kids growing up. You have so many other factors. So it's not like you have to beat yourself up over did I sell in a perfect year marketplace you know you could be a, a slowing marketplace and still come out great you know so it's not like that was just my opinion for but again i love uh what you said jason earlier too that you know real estate is a commodity right so it's going to compete in the open market and pricing is key so it could get yield multiple offers or it could definitely just hit the market and get off the market right away so there is no overpricing so people can win uh listings i mean who wants shady, to work for shady 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 <laughs> to, Nick to talk bad about yeah. realtors but it's okay <laughs> oh she knows i don't like her she knows if she's oh, listening we're not gonna do that because it's all like rainbows her. and yellow i'll, I'll call and it my out hair, i'll call it so cute today huh <laughs> anyway where can we get a hold of you did we do that yeah, man how do we get a hold of you phone number email address i'm so social glad security you asked. number <laughs> social security number the whole nine yards what you got 
Well, the social security number is 345. Oh, you got yeah. LifeLock. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, he's right. Yes. <laughs> this sponsor is by LifeLock. Uh, you, can, uh, you can find me at our team's website, the Real Group Real Estate Team. I don't think I mentioned the name of my team, at realgroupre.com. My email address is jason at realgroupre.com. And my telephone number is 773-797-9499. 773-797-9499. You got wow. that? Oh, look got at that. It. Look at that. Say it. Repeat it for me. Oh, yes. That's 1-800-773-797-2300-9499. That's Empire, man. Oh. Come on, bro. Aren't you a Cubs fan? That's like the, like they're the number one Cubs sponsor, Empire. That's amazing. We've got a bunch of great referral partners if you need some carpeting, too. We can just call that one number. I love it. Yeah. So what are you selling in uh, Oak Brook these days? I'm not selling anything in Oak Brook. So you're just like talking chop. You're just... (laughs) No, it was specifically, we were talking about that area. We were humdrumming on one particular agent that we felt was bad for the marketplace. A little misleading. Um, And, you know, today's show came up. That was really it. It was like timing. You know? I, but it is a misconception, though, that a lot of agents want to overprice properties. I mean, to carry inventory. That's Some people an old, will dirty do that. Trick. But it's not even an old, dirty trick. Again, it's like if the seller wants to stay and kind of test the market, there are some pesky sellers out there I'm that want to know. Not, like, they're reading all this, all this information online that's saying it's a seller's market. It's I'm not 5% market. high. Where you can negotiate down here. I'm talking like 20, 30% oh, overpriced. Wow. Like, you're like, how? How did this happen? You know, it's like, it'd be like you saying you're 5'9. That's a real big stretch. I'm you know? five four. That's even you a see, stretch. I have a cold and I'll With like increase my on. voice let's to this be level. Real. Like you know, come have on. you seen my heels? Anyway, let's not talk about me. Yeah, they're six inches and you're still five four. But listen, but hey some people there. strategically do that. Let's go back to that really quick because they want to control the market and they want to get generate leads from those listings. And so they're like, well, you know what? I'll just throw it on the in the MLS. We'll do open houses. We'll generate business. And so it's a win win for them. But I do frown upon people overpricing properties. And I mean. As far as market, I mean, that's pretty crazy that you can, one agent can control the market where they can actually say and skew the market time or the absorption rate for the area. Yeah. That's insane. Like, what this neighborhood is that small there? It's like this one agent that's going to control it and make it. Well, there's not a huge inventory supply in Oak Brook. Like, we're talking about Oak Brook itself. We're, there's not a whole lot of homes. There's homes, but it's not like. You know, somewhere in the city, and it's probably that over a million threshold. And, right? Yeah, we're talking, and most almost everything in Oprah's over a million dollars, unless it's really destroyed. You know, and it needs to be a, either a tear down or a you know. So, you know, you have an existing home, and then it's overpriced by let's say it's supposed to be a million one point one. It's like one point seven. You're like, <laughs> Who does that? F- <laughs> like, where do you, you can curse? It's yeah, okay. yeah, I know it get bleeped out anyways. <laughs> you know. But you're listening to and watching Market Overdrive. We have a ton of information. Last week, um, we also brought in great guests. And I love that you alluded to the fact that realtors who come on the show are going to give you the best expertise and they're skilled agents. We have badasses. You can always find this information on YouTube. You can subscribe, share. And please, if you have any questions or have a topic that you'd like us to cover on the show, please send us a message. You can reach us at info at marketoverdrive.com. And Nick, would you like to introduce our next guest? I'm going to mess up her last name, so I'm going to try my best. Okay. Reigning in from Keller Williams Realty, Elizabeth Chikowski. Is it Chikowski? Sikowski. Yeah. See, I told no, you I was going to mess up. I kind of, I, I mean, I, I, was, I, had a, I was concerned too. I had, a friend, I had a friend in high school last name Chikowski. 
<laughs> and he spelled it without an H, so I'm like, oh, okay, now okay. I'm confused. So yeah. I thought no, I was going to no hit this. H. All right. Hi. Sikowski. Hi. Hi, guys. Nice to meet you, Elizabeth. Thank you, you too. Welcome to Market Overdrive. And we need to start with a little bit of background history resume. What you got? Sure. So I'm a, a realtor for Keller Williams. I've been doing that as a realtor. I've been in the market for just a year. Um, so I'm brand new as a realtor. Um, before that, I was in the technology industry, did that for about 18 years, was the executive vice president of a technology company out of Buffalo Grove. Woohoo! Um, look so, at her. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so That's, um, a, lot when of, you that's guys... a lot of words in your title, executive vice president of... <laughs> I like that. It's an awesome title. I don't like that. Um, I don't even have one of those. <laughs> you should get one. <laughs> uh, but So when you were talking about analytics and numbers and all that, and I was listening, it just really was, you, you know, all, you got I got all excited because I'm all about numbers and analytics and, you yeah. know, and the data, right? Because as you guys were saying, numbers are never going to lie. You could paint a picture in whatever, you know, colors you want, but when you show data, when you show numbers, those are never going to lie. They're never going to show something else. It's a famous saying of mine. I love it. You can lie about your weight. And I know that you were back there listening and you probably heard me that people should align themselves with realtors who are not novice, who have experience in understanding and deciphering data. So I will take that back. If you do align yourself with a realtor who has had previous experience reading and understanding that data, because when you have a new agent, that is the hardest part to teach. It is understanding data. Stop looking at me like that. But I mean, you have other realtors in your office, right? They're walking around like, that's why most new agents start with buyers, because they don't know how to comp out properties. You have to agree with that. I agree with it. Okay, good. So we can move on. Because I usually don't agree with almost anything Carla says. Um, you're here to specifically talk about how to become a real estate investor. Yes. Okay. Yes. You want to just, let's just dive into that because that's like literally a four hour program and it we got about 20 minutes to do it. So let's just no jump problem. straight to the goods. Yes. You mentioned analytics. If you're an investor, this is when <laughs> analytics means everything. everything. I'm personally an investor and, and I could honestly tell you I haven't even gone to see the last. 40 or so properties I've bought. Wow. Like physically, I didn't go there That's to see. Nice. But why? Why would I not do that? Why would I even care? Well, you probably have a team or someone that is doing that for you. And and when you run the numbers, when you put them on paper, yeah. you know right away what your exposure is going to be. I have the greatest team on earth, me, myself, and I. Beautiful. But... So it's, a, it's all about Kim. <laughs> it's it's all about the analytics when it, it comes to being an investor. So that's yes. where let's let's drive on that a little sure. bit. How do you attack the process? You're a first time investor. What are the things you should watch out for? What should be your driving force in making decision and buying a home as an investment or not? So I think, uh, for example, for us, and when I say us, I, I'm um, talking about my husband who's here. Um, we're looking at the numbers, but we're also. I think that the first thing to become an investor, because this is about how to become an investor, right? I think the first thing that you have to look at is what's making you become an investor, right? Because that's going to be about being hopefully financially um, independent and not having to rely on a job. So when we're looking at our numbers, and we do actually still go see all of our properties that we're, because we flip and we do rentals, sure. but um, we're still looking at everything and, you know, ourselves, we're going, we're driving, we're looking at the areas, we're really studying the markets that we're in. Um, we're looking at a lot of uh, reports, or I look at a lot of reports saying, okay, um, what is Barrington looking like right now? How quickly is it turning around? Um, how long would a property of this size take us um, to fix to um, purchase, fix, and put back on the market. And then when we put it back on the market, what's what's going to be our return after 
all of our expenses and closing costs. So that's kind of what we're what we're doing. And becoming an investor, as we we're talking about, it has to do. Um, you have to look at all those points. But I think in order to start, you first have to identify your why and identify what it is that you want to invest in. Uh, whether it's that you're going to be investing in buying single family homes that maybe you want to go ahead and fix and flip, or if you're going to be looking at rentals, whether it's a you know two flat, three flat, or just small condos. So I think the the main thing that you have to, at least for us, identify right away is where do you want to be investing your money in. You good with that, or you want to add to it, or do we want to we want to pick on our guest? I'm not going to pick on our guest. Let's pick on our guest. Pick no, on, leave her alone. She seems pretty smart, so we can no, we can we ahead, can have some fun her, with her. She's, she seems good. I'm on your side, just so you know. All right, thank you. Like, thank just you. Fine. She, she said everything right, so I'm just like trying to add some fire to the program because she nailed everything, and we're left out of a job. <laughs> No, but there's a new thing, right, that you lenders are, a word that lenders are throwing out there these days. It's called a stress test. A stress test. Oh, well, that's for FHA explain? specific. Yeah, but I think that nowadays when we're looking at more multi-unit properties, um, <clears throat> actually buyers yeah. are being said, okay, you can qualify for X amount. We're looking for multi-unit properties. Mm-hmm. You can qualify for four fifty. But, sh- but if it's a three, it's an investment. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not. I mean, like... She's talking got, about flipping or investing? Well, whole, well, that program is not used for investing. Okay. But we can discuss it because inevitably you might want to leave your homeowner-occupied property behind as an investment. Personally, I don't like... I think if you have no choice, buying uh, an investment property with an FHA loan is all you got, and that's fine if the investment makes sense. I personally don't like it. I think that there's a lot of... um, I think, look, again, if you have no choice and it's the only way in, then do it. If you're trying to be greedy and hold on to your money, you like you that want to caller put down, who said, "If you don't have any money invested in it, then you shouldn't have well, any skin in the game." Well, you hold on. Be doing this. Okay, well, hold on. Let's go back to. We'll get to the stress test in a minute. And what that actually means, but if you're going to take out a loan on an investment and take out PMI and all and a higher rate, all these things that take away from your return on investment, that's not really the best way to truly invest in it. Then. Well, if you have me. to, because you have no okay. choice, if you're going to owner occupy. Well, FHA loans are meant for owner occupied. This is conversation well, about investment this, properties. Right? Yes. So, a stress test is only conducted or done on FHA products, not five percent down convention or three percent. They're down done on FHA products that are <clears throat> over two units. Okay. So it's a three or four unit. So, so I was misinterpreting that word because right. what I was analyzing is okay if I if the mortgage is twenty nine hundred and the rental income is three thousand then I can go up and it's rental. not just the rental income being three thousand you have to deduct oh, steady people people are calling it you have to get it's got to be seventy five percent of the rental income so like if the rental income is three thousand I can't even think what seventy five percent let's just say it's twenty six hundred or something like that the mortgage can't be above the twenty six hundred then okay so. The basically the property has to support itself in event of a default on a three. That's what the stress test really means. But again, as an investor, in the long play, you're going to move in there. You're going to live in there because you have to be owner occupied an FHA loan. And then maybe down the road, you're not, you don't want to live in a four unit. That can be a great investment because ten years down the road, it's gotten a lot of appreciation. But if, to go in as an investor, number one, you can't use the FHA program. Number two. Even though there is investment programs with mortgage insurance, I think that you're starting to really deteriorate your investment and your return on your property. I agree, but I think the important thing is to get started, right? So even if you have to get started, maybe with an FHA that has a PMI and it's definitely going to cut into your monthly profit that you could be making. Mm -hmm. 
I really do think that it's just important to get started. And then once you start, then maybe you could meet other people and network and then figure out a way, how can I now get out of this loan, right? And maybe into a different loan that would be better for me. But at least at least you got started with something. Yeah. See, I love that. I completely agree but, with that. But she's right. But there's also some holes in that because what? she's right that it's just to, important to get started, right? You have to get started somewhere. But maybe a three or four unit is not the way to go on getting started. Maybe it's just a single family home with a 5% down, maybe two more percent. For an investment? Look, 5%. Well, hold on. It's your first home. You're going to put down 5%. Instead of doing an FHA loan, you put down 5%. You do no mortgage insurance because you can actually do a program without it. And now, if and when you leave, that, that mortgage note is secured. You have equity there. It's going to cash flow. There's, you don't have to refinance it and do all this other stuff. And but test if it's a, for an investment, you're going to hold a... a she's saying getting started. Yeah. To get started, you could do a two-flat versus a single family. Because if you're an investor, right? And this mm-hmm. is something that I teach all the time. It's about <clears throat> being a property owner. It's like you're buying a company. You're buying a company that's address 1850 North Hall. I consider two company. flats and single families kind of the same thing when it comes but to But single families cannot... You have 100% vacancy if that tenant moves out. So then you're stuck yeah. with the vacancy period of, what, two to three months? If, if you're stuck in the fourth quarter and you can't get it rented so now you're absorbing the costs but if you have a two flat then you have the second floor unit that's subsidizing some of the mortgage so you're not 100% out of vacancies so I find I frown upon single family investments I think those are only for owner occupied if you're going to do an investment go single people do that people were buying single family (coughs) investors your opinion. <laughs> um, I agree and, and disagree just a little bit. Um, I think a two flat is actually a really good idea, especially if you're a younger investor where maybe you don't have, um, you know, kids in school yet. Um, so you could, you know, live in the first floor, second floor, wherever you want, and then you rent out the other one, right? And you do that for a few years, and then you go ahead and you move on after a few years to buy something else or to buy another sec- another two flat, depending on how much money you're making. I think single family homes are pretty great at uh, that you could rent out because, especially actually, depends on the, maybe the school district that you're in. If you have a single fam, a small single family home that is in a great school district, that's going to rent out. I, you know, I don't care where you are. It's just going to rent out. I know a guy. So, Sorry. The same token, if you, have a sing, if you have a two flat that's in near a, a good location, as a matter of fact, if you look at statistically, three bedroom homes are going to have more um, changes. Like people who are parents are going to move more often than a two bedroom family because the two bedroom family is like a one person or, you know, a couple that's more stable or an older uh, person that's going to stay there doesn't like to move often. But most families move often more so than the single family than the single person of tenant. I know a smart realtor, <clears throat> South Suburbs, been doing it for a long time. He's an investor as well. He rents nothing but single family homes. That's crazy and it's intense. All, and he makes them pay for everything when everything. it's required. Think about it, right? He's, so he's hands free. I, and I so mean, I get it. Kudos to that. And then, by the, the way, workload is a lot. By the way, you got one property over here, another property over there, another property where you could just have one loan here. Three clients, you know then you get an attic or a basement. Not do you know who's usually you your buyer those, of your single family investment? End up buying it's those. You, it's usually the tenant. What are you? What are you saying? The buyer, oftentimes, like if you're right. renting it long term to the same person over and over again. What I'm talking about, like if you're wanting to build a long term investment portfolio where you want to start, fine. I say okay, what? Because a single family house you could buy for 150 versus 250. I mean, like. You know, it all depends because the loan amount, and it's something that I like to tell people, don't be, 
when you're buying something to own or occupy, you're going to buy it based on carrying costs because people are so used to saying, oh, I'm going to buy this car, but I can only afford $450 or $600 or $700 a month. And that's how they shop for their first time home when they're going to own or occupy it. But when you're buying for an investment and you're actually acquiring a company that you're going to manage those tenants who are your customers, you can't look at the price. You got to look at the cap rate. How much income are you going to get? How long is it going to take you to recoup that investment? So if you're buying a single family, in more cases than not, you're going to have to come out of pocket to pay that mortgage. But if you're buying a, th- a two-flat that you can ad- eventually rent out, maybe fix the attic or fix the basement, not saying that it's legal, but it's zoning, right? You have to figure out and maybe you change the zoning and do that. But you're going to be able to get additional income and repay that investment sooner than you would a single family. And then you justify the vacancy rates. It's all I'm saying. And it's seriously a formula that a lot of my clients do, and they are very successful owning property more than... And eventually, you grow from a two-flat to a three-flat to a 10-unit building. And once you have a 20-unit building in one place, you can hire somebody and pay them, what, $50,000 to the property management, and boom, you have your own company. I like what Elizabeth said in the very beginning. You got to be open-minded to the different investments. (laughs) I'm going to roll with that, because I kind of go into every piece of property open-minded yes like i don't really try to you know i think too many people listen to the show talk about investments like oh i want to be a landlord i want to be a landlord i'm like well sometimes i just flip it right sometimes i buy it and i'm going to potentially flip it but worst case scenario maybe i just rent it right you have to really look at every asset differently you know it's a single family it's a four unit it's a six unit you know there's there's so many ways you can't just fit everything every square peg into the same circle so to speak you're trying oh it's got to fit here it's got to fit here no it doesn't work like that we i was just uh we were just talking on the way here i went to look at a property today and my point of going to the property was to try to get a for sale by owner to come and list with me right and when i was looking at it i'm like i actually I actually just want to buy this house, you know, and rent it out. It's a small single family home, but I'm like, this is a great rental. Um, So I think keeping an open mind um, and and we could also even go into if you want to invest and you currently have a home, maybe it's time that you move out of that house and into another home that hopefully you could find something that needs a little bit of work that you could live in, right? And that's a lot of people, we're actually gonna about to do that. Um, just kind of go into another house that maybe needs some work to be updated, repainted, live there for a few years. And we've been living in our home for seven years, gonna get rid of it and take the profit and move on. Um, but yeah, I think just being open-minded and looking at every single property um, and how you could use it and how you could add it to your portfolio, I think it's really important to become an investor. That's great. And I want to add to that as well, Elizabeth. <clears throat> when you're an, a realtor who knows how to flip properties and knows how to do property management and are buying for yourself or thinking like an investor when you're representing a client, that actually is a skill that a lot of people don't have as well. Because when you're looking at a property and there may be a wall that you could tear down or a kitchen that you can update, and you're talking about sweat equity, which is something that most consumers nowadays are frowning upon because they're like, ah, oh, we want instant gratification. Oh, yeah. It's cool to align yourself with someone like Elizabeth that can see right through that box and reshape it in order for it to be profitable for someone who may not have that vision, right? Because a lot of buyers don't understand what it's like to make those changes. Right. No, I agree. Um, Currently, when I go out with my clients that are looking to invest, I actually, before I even take them out to see houses, I've already did some research on 
you know, if we go see this house, I think this is where it's going to be after it's fixed up. Maybe it just needs paint. Maybe it just needs to, you just need to redo the, the flooring, get rid of the carpet. So I think it's really important that if you are looking to invest, that you align yourself with the right realtor, um, start educating yourself, um, not only with your realtor, but really putting that network together into um, who is going to be helping you out on your investments. Great stuff. And Elizabeth is here because she's our guest through Trust One Title. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for bringing us great talent every week. Um, we loving, we're loving all the content. I mean, we had the uh, Consulado de Mexico. You like how I did that? I just want to throw that you out. Did that you did that again. You always got to get all ethnic in the middle <laughs> of something. George is in the studio and Georgia happens to be a sweetheart and a really good friend of mine. So thank you guys for bringing us and seeking out great talent for our show. So before we wrap this bad boy up, Elizabeth, we absolutely have to get your contact information. Sure. How do we get hold of you? Sure. My number is 847-802-8420. Email address Elizabeth Sikowski, C-I-K-O-W-S-K-I at KW.com. KW.com. And there you go. Thank you so Love much, guys. It. It was Thank you for coming. coming here and not coughing in your face. <laughs> On that note, my little banana, I'm going to close this bad boy out. <laughs> this is episode number 1,985 of Market Overdrive. What are you I'm just saying? kidding. You, you can Did catch you call this me banana. Episode. I mean, we're all but yellow. Oh you can catch this episode and every episode by going to our website at marketoverdrive.com, subscribing to the WGN podcasts. Obviously, it's on iTunes. Um, click the Market Overdrive one, and of course, you can also catch this program on Facebook and YouTube. All these shows are cataloged on all our social media platforms. Every Thursday or most Thursdays at 5.30 p.m. We will see you again next week. 